Blaine here. Before we get into the episode of this week's podcast, I did want to just give you a bit of a heads up about the audio quality. Unlike most of our recordings, which are recorded via Skype, often with people recording their own sides on each end through Audacity or some other tool to improve audio quality, this one was recorded in a single room with a microphone that has a stereo option so I could try to separate our voices. Unfortunately, I didn't notice until after recording was done that the gain was set a little too high. And the house also had a toddler who desperately needed a nap, but was resisting actually taking one. So there's some of that background near the end. But the conversation is still a good one, and I believe you can make it all out. I just apologize for the audio quality not being quite what you're used to. Enjoy. Welcome to episode 19 of the unofficial 75 Greatest Marvels Countdown podcast. The podcast where you discuss and examine the 75 greatest Marvel stories as chosen by Marvel readers and published by Marvel Comics itself. The countdown continues every Wednesday until June 1st, 2016. And joining us once again to discuss Daredevil on this podcast is Mr. Anthony Stoffer. Welcome back, Anthony. Good to be back, Blaine. And we last heard from Anthony way back in Daredevil, The Man Without Fear, as well as a discussion of the X-Factor psychiatrist issue. Classic. This time we are here to discuss Daredevil 181, written and penciled by Frank Miller, inked and colored by Klaus Janssen, lettered by Joseph Rosen, edited by Denny O'Neill, cover date of April 1982 with an on-sale date of December 29th, 1981, and this was published under editor-in-chief Jim Shooter. So this is one of the biggest issues in Daredevil history, I think it's safe to say. You know, it's funny that you said that the publishing date was 1981. I couldn't even tell you when I first read this issue, but it still seems like it's such a recent issue, like erasing everything that's happened since then. This honestly seems like one of those things that was still five, six years ago, and it seems so recent because it was such a hallmark in the story of Daredevil. And, you know, the relationship that he had with Elektra is just so, when I think about Daredevil, I never think of Karen Page. I always think about Elektra as being his, you know, true love. Or, you know, I never even think about Mila. I didn't like her anyways. But um, it's always Elektra, and I always come back to thinking about Elektra and the death of Elektra and just, you know, how much it resonates. So it'll be interesting to look at this issue and see if I'm romanticizing her death, shall we say, and the relationship that they had. <laughs> yeah. Well, in the the history of Daredevil, you say it feels recent because it's a milestone, and it does. This issue was published 17 years after Daredevil's first issue, and it was published 34 years ago. Wow. I was one. Maybe two. (laughs) Yeah, December 29th, 1981, I had just turned four. Yeah, that's craziness. Absolute craziness. First of all, one of the things that sets it apart is that it's narrated by Bullseye. Yeah, and you know, I find right as soon as you open the front cover and it has the target on Daredevil and just says, blam, you're dead, you know, it, it really sets the tone for the rest of this issue because this is a very, very ultra-violent issue. And, you know, back in the 80s, violence, you know, we had the cop TV shows and things like that, but the front image of Daredevil having his brain shot out with the blood and like his arm hitting rigor just really sets the tone for the rest of this issue, I think. It does. And this is a culmination of what Frank Miller had been doing since he took over writing chores with issue 168. So skipping ahead to the end about recommending it and where it goes, I would recommend that you read Frank Miller's Daredevil starting with issue 168 rather than starting with 181. 
Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I think every true fan probably has this trade paperback or all of these comics sitting somewhere. It's exactly like Born Again. Everybody that's a true Daredevil fan has that trade or has all of the comics. Yeah. Born Again coming up in podcast number five, if memory serves. But in any event, as Anthony said, it starts off with a splash page of Daredevil getting shot in the forehead, which we quickly learn is Bullseye's fantasy. He's working out in the gym, at, or the prison gym, I should say, because he is still in prison and suffering migraines from the injuries he sustained at Daredevil's hand, completely misinterpreting events in terms of why Daredevil saved his life earlier in this run. You know, and now that you bring up that moment where Daredevil saves his life, you know, every time I see that scene, I have to come back to, well, the Daredevil film, film with Ben Affleck, and where they tried to mimic the exact same scene with somebody that Daredevil would have had less, so much less rage towards than Bullseye. And even though Bullseye, you know, hadn't killed Elektra up until this point, they were still, you know, they were blood enemies. They hated each other. Bullseye was a cold-hearted killer. Daredevil was, you know, the beacon of good, and they were always at odds. And Daredevil saves Bullseye from the oncoming subway. Now, regardless of motives or regardless of any of that, when you watch the movie and in the opening scenes where uh, Daredevil is in a very, very similar situation, but with a far weaker man, a far weaker villain, something that's, you know, he's not even really established to be the penultimate point of evil to the point that he deserves death, and Daredevil just lets him get hit by the subway. It really, it really just shows a crazy juxtaposition between the movie and the comic book, which is, I think, one of the problems with the movie. And it's got more than one. We'll get to that in the Silver Screen Superheroes podcast someday. But anyway, so we cut from Bullseye's fantasies, including a somewhat accurate fantasy of Daredevil training and working out, to Bullseye out in the courtyard at the prison, when the Punisher shows up just to screw with him. Comes to tell him, you've been on good behavior, waiting for your old boss, the Kingpin, to break you out. He's not going to. Word on the yard is that he's found a new assassin. Doesn't need you anymore. That rotten, why are you telling me this? Chances are you'll do something dumb. Get yourself killed. I'd like that. You know, I, I think it was a good move to you know, toss the Punisher in. And at this point in time, Punisher being in the jail. And correct me if I'm wrong, was it one of the cases where he wanted to be in jail because he had ulterior motives for being there? or it's, He didn't even have his own, his own ongoing at this point. Oh, really? Yeah, this is 1981. So this is when he just had a series of guest appearances and one shots. So he did end up in prison just because he was killing people. But in the issue, he was okay with going to prison as usually is because that just gives him close access to a lot of his targets. We go from there to Bullseye accepting the opportunity to conduct a job interview, which also establishes that the Pondexter alias that he uses is an alias. It's not his real name. It's just a name that he's used. So he's not actually Benjamin Pondexter or Benjamin Poindexter, as people tend to spell it these days. There never was an I in that particular alias. Oh, it just looks so much like Poindexter there. Bullseye does manage to escape custody. He fakes another migraine to get a pill and uses that pill as a weapon. Now, I have to say the one thing that does... Well, there's a couple of things that uh, bother me about this. Number one, I've just never been a fan of the Bullseye costume. I don't know why it doesn't resonate with me, but that's just one of my own little weird personal quibs. And even when I was a kid, even though I realized the bullseyes, you know, this violent assassin, 
I, I just never bought it with the costume. Do, do you agree? I, I, I don't feel the fear from the costume. Like, yeah, he never really seemed to be one for the flair of the for the dramatic. Yeah, it's an effective assassin as effective as he is would probably prefer to blend into the crown than stand out by wearing spandex. Like now, from there, uh, as we were talking about where he starts to escape. I, I look at the escape scene and I understand, like, I think the best line that he has in the entire part is the other guards react pretty quickly. They're well trained, but to me, they're in slow motion. And I enjoy the way that it really sets the scene that no matter how much they can try to fight him off, he's just so much superior to them in every aspect of fighting and, you know, gamesmanship, marksmanship, and even tacticianing or being a tacticianer, rather, that there's nothing that the guards can do. But it's almost a comedy of errors that they're setting themselves up in every way to help him escape. And as we jump ahead further, and they've got him surrounded, they're shooting at him, he shoots out both of the lamps that they have aimed on him, and the helicopter pulls down just close enough that he can take advantage and get into the helicopter. I think, personally, I would have rather seen him escape by just crashing through the front gates, taking out all of the guards, instead of a guard taking the helicopter right down within his range. Beggars can't be choosers on that one, though. It still was a good scene. It was. And as you said, it really does establish Bullseye's skill level, which is great to set him up against Daredevil. I've said it many times. I think one of the reasons that Daredevil is not as popular today as I believe he should be is that it took him 130 issues to get a good villain. And that was when Bullseye was first introduced, was Daredevil 131. It just took too long to establish a good rogues gallery for Daredevil. Yeah, you know, when when I think about and I think back of the comic books that I'd read as a kid and the Daredevil villains, they worked when I was a kid, but by today's standards, they were nothing. Uh, for some reason, one that always flashes back into my head, I think it was probably, maybe it could have been one of the first Daredevil comics I have, but I remember one of his big villains was the Bengal. And it was a guy just dressed in orange with black stripes. And I don't even think I've ever seen him again. But when you look at that, and then there was the Owl or Stilts Man and all of these other villains, Bullseye probably was his first really good villain outside of Kingpin. Yeah, and the Kingpin showed up later. Kingpin, prior to Frank Miller in 168, had not dealt with Daredevil. Ah, my bad. exclusive to Spider-Man. Huh. I would say that the only villain that was really good for Daredevil prior to Bullseye was the original Mr. Fear story, but part of the reason that story works so well is because the villain did not survive it. So From here, we do find Bullseye tracking down a group that's competing with the Kingpin and offering his assassin services, particularly to take down Elektra. And he also starts to put the pieces together that Matt Murdock and Daredevil are one and the same. Now, Elektra has been hired to assassinate Franklin Nelson or Foggy Nelson as we have previously known, but because of her relationship with Matt, primarily her past relationship, she's unable to do it. Bullseye notices and shows up to take advantage of that. I'm just going to actually swing back and uh, talk about another scene. And I I know it seems sort of negative, but another scene that did bother me in this was the court scene where Bullseye had gone to, you know, watch Matt Murdock in court to see if he was really Daredevil. I enjoy how when he's figuring out that Matt Murdock could be Daredevil, it's just from comparing the face and looking at the face structure 
And, you know, if more villains were able to do that, we wouldn't have the Superman paradox nearly as much as we currently have. But the one little scene in here, and the one little part that just bothers me, is Bullseye in Disguise walks up to Foggy Nelson, slaps him on the back, and says, Nice work, counselor. And from the panel right above, it really does look like Matt Murdock is in listening range of that. And as established later on, there's the little twist when Murdock realizes Bullseye's around because of his voice. Matt Murdock had to have known that Bullseye had just escaped prison. And I just, I would think he would be far more on guard for something like that and far more in tune. Yeah, I, the only way that this could work, for at least from my perspective, is if Bullseye was disguising his voice when he said, nice work, counselor, to avoid identification when he was laying that on. I don't see the little quotation marks around it. I'll assume it wasn't in disguise. But in any event, we go from there to Bullseye and Electra. After Electra chooses not to kill Franklin, and Bullseye's been following her in another cab, we get a very knockdown dragout fight between the two of them. Lasts several pages, which ultimately ends with Bullseye stabbing Electra with her own sigh in a figurative death that Frank Miller was amazed he was allowed to get away with, because he thought the metaphor there, involving a different kind of penetration, was crystal clear. And that is the way he intended this panel to be interpreted. The fight was the fight was always a good fight. Uh, Bullseye versus Electra. I would have liked for Electra to have a bit more offensive on it, because she has been established as being, you know, up on the level of Bullseye, Matt Murdock, and... Yeah, or sorry, Daredevil, rather. Yeah, she's on par with Daredevil, who has defeated Bullseye, so... Yeah. At, at the very least, it would have been nice if he hit her hard and fast when she was distracted by not being able to kill Franklin. Yeah, it, it, exactly. And I can only assume, because he hits her with the card to the throat, and that's what slices her throat and slows her down. Even though, as Miss Busters has told me, a playing card cannot penetrate somebody's throat like that. But... I have to believe that he just caught her by surprise because she didn't fully understand his skill set at that point in time, which is sort of the way that I write off him being able to defeat her so easily. That penetration panel, it's funny because as you say that, I look at it and I'm like, oh my god, that is exactly what it looks like. And no matter how, I guess, almost innocent it sounds, reading this first when I was a kid, that type of thing just didn't click. And uh, it actually propagated up until now when I look at it. And I'll probably never look at this scene again. And the scenes of her like slumped over, sort of walking away completely disheveled. You can really get that feeling from it now. And I have to believe that my young, innocent eyes were just clouding me up until this point. Yeah. Yeah. But that's, like I said, that's the interpretation Miller was going for. Electra does stumble away from the fight, fatally wounded, and Bullseye knows it, so he lets her go, and she goes crawling back to Matt Murdock and dies in his arms. And it's in the morgue, this is the scene, where Matt Murdock recognizes Bullseye's voice. And Bullseye goes, wait a minute, why would he recognize it? Maybe he is Daredevil, tests it by throwing something sharp at him, and Murdock blocks it. You know, the morgue scene, sad. Matt Murdock's obviously very, very uh, emotionally distraught at this. I I think... Something that kind of takes away from Electra's death from Matt Murdock's perspective or Daredevil's perspective at this point is the fact that this is told from the perspective of Bullseye. And being told from the perspective of Bullseye, 
it really does a lot to take the emotionality away at this point in time. Because even though, you know, they're trying to show that Matt Murdock is kind of sad, he looks very, very cold and stone-faced through a lot of it as well. He certainly does. But following that, Bullseye goes to the Kingpin to get his old spot back. The price is Daredevil's body, which he's totally fine with because he was going to do that anyway. Goes to assault Matt Murdock at home, but Matt Murdock has figured out that his secret identity is in jeopardy, if not blown. Rigs up, you know, a recording as well as the dummy that makes it appear as though Matt Murdock is sitting at a desk working when Daredevil attacks Bullseye from behind. And Bullseye writes it off as, oh, you guys set me up like a dummy. I fell for it. I don't know how you did it. But now he's written off as their buddies and not the same person again. And we get another intense fight being smashed into windows, going out through roofs, fighting over trains on high wires. Also, you have to mention Bullseye is using Electra's size in the fight as his preferred weapon of choice, just trying to drive that nail home about, you know, his superiority. Now, yeah. uh, watching the fight take place, it is something that uh, is kind of, and it's referenced quite a bit about Daredevil's fighting style. And earlier on, when Bullseye's remembering Daredevil training, he brings up the fact that Daredevil's practicing his karate. And then when you watch Daredevil fight, they have the flips and things like that. And just, I, I always feel the point to mention that Daredevil's fighting style. And if you read later comics of Daredevil, they'll talk about how he's a brawler with the boxing, but he was obviously trained by stick and ninjas. So he has ninjutsu and sometimes his fighting styles referred to as being ninjutsu. I think it's just kind of funny. And especially when you look back in the 80s, karate was the big martial art at the time. And the way that he fights kind of changes with the generation, or obviously not in the con or obviously not in the panels, but how uh, everybody refers to his fighting kind of changes with whatever the popularized martial art is at the time. It reminds me of Batman after Bane had broke Batman's back and he was training to come back. And judo being the popularized martial art of the time, or one of the big ones, uh, all of a sudden Batman was just solely a judo master as he was training to go back and fight Bane. <laughs> yeah. See, I just take it as, as it's been later interpreted by people who are cleaning up that continuity error, I believe starting with Ann Nascenti, that he's got a mixed style based on training and multiple techniques. Fair enough. But the fight ends with Daredevil catching Bullseye and preparing to save his life again, but Bullseye will not accept that. And Bullseye deliberately lets go and drops and lands on his back just below the neck. I think this was a really good, it was really good to start off the comic with the reference to Daredevil saving his life and then finishing it this way with Daredevil, with Bullseye not allowing Daredevil to save his life. Now, at this point, uh, again, and this is what I was talking about earlier, Daredevil is still being presented as completely stone-faced here. It really does seem like he's borderline emotionless about Elektra's death up until this point, and I realize it is because it's told from Bullseye's perspective. But it's right coming up soon where you start to see, uh, I guess you could say, the emotion in Daredevil coming up. Uh, what we do get in the denouement is, you know, Kingpin burning his file on Bullseye because he figures, well, he's no longer useful because, as far as the reader knows, he should be dead. Only he's still narrating. As he's narrating with his own thoughts, we see Matt going to Electra's grave, and then we end with the scene that was also reproduced in the Mark Steven Johnson film, with Bullseye 
in a hospital bed, bandaged head to toe, paralyzed, but just waiting. Uh, one thing that uh, has I've always noticed about Daredevil and some of the imagery that really propagates is going back and he's looking at uh, Elektra's tombstone, and it's that Celtic cross again. And if you look at a lot of Daredevil imagery, it's always that cross with the circle around it uh, when he's hanging off the cross. I can't remember the issue name of that. But that is some reoccurring imagery that I always do like to see. I believe that is actually issue 182. <laughs> Okay. Yeah, but it goes back to the Irish origins of the character more so than the Greek origins of Electra's character. Yeah. But that is the plot in a nutshell. Now, we clearly have covered some of the significance of this. Not only is this part of the Frank Miller run on Daredevil, which is you know, still the run that everyone is compared to on Daredevil, right? Bendis was saying, yeah, it has. when Bendis was writing, people were saying it hasn't been this good since Miller. You know, when Brubaker took over, Mark Wade took over, everyone who's coming in whether the content is similar or not, and it often has been because people are aping Miller, that's sort of the definitive run. Miller is the yardstick that Daredevil creators are measured by. You know, you and I have talked about this quite a bit. And as you've said to me, one of the problems that I know you've had with a lot of the way that Daredevil's written is Daredevil gets a girlfriend. And honestly, Daredevil getting a girlfriend, kiss a death. Something's going bad. Something's going wrong. You know, but. So many times what's happened after this is it'll be Daredevil getting beat down, beat down, beat down, beat down, beat down, but he'll never come back up and get his revenge. And in this, like even tied up within the span of an issue, villain comes, tears one of Matt Murdock's great loves away from him, but then Daredevil comes back to exact his revenge. I feel that in a lot of the runs that followed this, is they loved using the device of bringing Daredevil down and putting everything against him. But, and as you mentioned before as well, they forget that he needs to come above these problems as well. And instead, they're just far more content to bury him deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper without him ever actually able to reach the top again. Yeah, he's been more about enduring than overcoming for a long period of his history. The first issue, at least, of Charles Soule's run is nice. I love the Wade run. Yeah. He is now tied for having the second most issues written and has the longest continuous run on Daredevil of anyone in the character's history. But this isn't about the Mark Wade one, although I think a case could be made that Mark Wade's Daredevil run belongs on this greatest 75 list. Absolutely. When was the 75 list made? It came out in 2014, so his run had started, Yeah, but... He hadn't really established... Yeah, it wasn't culminated yet. It's the kind of thing where if the vote happens for 80th or 100th, it'll probably get more votes than it did the first time as things get readjusted. So you talked about when you read this years and years ago. How, do you remember how you were first introduced to the story? You know, way back when, when I was a kid, it was just all about picking up random comics. And I know that I had this one. Over time, I lost it. I, I've now reacquired it. but. When when I first read it, like I didn't know that much about, you know, I was, I was probably seven or eight at the time, maybe nine at a high. But at that age, you know, when you're picking up random comics, I know Daredevil, I know he's a character. Oh, I know Elektra. And by coincidence, I probably picked up a couple issues before this, so I probably got lucky that 
I had established something that was going on. I knew Daredevil and Elektra were boyfriend and girlfriend as my mind understood it back then. So seeing this, uh, it was like, oh my god, Elektra's dead. And even though I'd probably only read like three issues of her in it, I'm like, ah, oh, that's crazy. How can Elektra be dead? And by chance, and this one I actually still do have from being a kid, I also had the Electra Resurrection issue. <laughs> so it was kind of cool that I had that combo like that. My first introduction to this was much more recent. I started getting into comics again when the movie started coming out. It was actually the Spider-Man movies that got me back into comics. So in the early 2000s, I'd heard that Kevin Smith, whose movies I really enjoyed, had written a run on Daredevil. So I picked up that trade, really liked what I saw, went online, said, what do you guys recommend? And... People pointed to the current Bendis run and the past Frank Miller run, both of which were collected. So I first read this in trade paperback, and I understand why it's so huge. Daredevil has since become my favorite character, due in large part to this run and the later Born Again run, which we'll be discussing in a few weeks' time. I now own every issue of Daredevil, up to at least the first issue of Charles Souls. The later issues are probably just sitting in my box waiting for me. <laughs> At Thunderground, Roy runs a good shop. If you're in the St. Albert area, go check it out. But yeah, that was my first exposure was reading it in trade. And just for a while there, I was consuming all the Daredevil I could get my hands on. You know, when I got back into comic books, I started picking up Daredevils as a weekly. And that was during the Bendis run, I believe. And then I just started to get so into it. I believe I went, I think the first trade that I picked up was Born Again. And then pretty close after that, I think it was the Kevin Smith run. And then from there, I started collecting everything Kevin Smith running up uh, retroactively through trades. So as has probably been alluded to many times, this issue has impact. In Daredevil comics, there's pre-Miller, there's Miller, and there's post-Miller. And it's a very clear dividing line. This defined Daredevil effectively from this point forward. Not just in the comics, but as we've said, the first time Daredevil's story was adapted to the big screen by Mark Stephen Johnson. This was a huge influence on it. There's a number of images that were reproduced directly from this issue. In terms of impact, I think there are so many just images in here. And, you know, the most powerful being Electra being penetrated, as he said. But there are so many other powerful images in here. Daredevil standing at the grave. You look at so many of the fight scenes, the beginning with Daredevil and the bullet in his head. I think the visual impact of this issue is next to none. And the emotional impact, you know, anytime a character dies in a comic book or in a story, you want it to carry that emotional impact with it. And this was also back in the time when characters weren't dying left, right, and center. Yeah, nor were they coming back left, yeah, right, and center. Yeah, nor were they coming back left, right, and center. Unlike the horrible, horrible 90s. When it was basically just a revolving door of death and revival. So, you know, as I remember it, admittedly, I didn't, don't follow many comics from the 80s. Electra being killed and, you know, later coming back through the resurrection, I think it's very, very powerful and packs a very, very powerful punch. Karen Page was actually still alive at this point as well, now that I think about when Karen Page actually died. So this was the first one of Daredevil's girlfriends to get killed. To not, not to be cursed, but to be killed. <laughs> yeah. Set the stage for the rest of them. <laughs> yeah, as we said, this 
This run defines Daredevil from that point forward. Yes, this has impact in and out of comics. And a lot of it is the significance. It's the death of Elektra. I I don't know how much more there is to say about it. So I think from there, the next piece is to go into the portion of the podcast I so shamelessly stolen from Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast that's doing awesome work and everybody should be listening to it. Are there any messages, morals, and meanings that we need to be looking at? I think the greatest message that exists in this is simply don't date Daredevil. (laughs) Ever. (laughs) Yeah, this is where that starts. That's definitely a recurring theme in the series. (laughs) If we look at this issue alone, I would almost say, you know, be careful with the evidence and verify what you're looking at. Because Bullseye came so close to blowing Matt Murdock's secret identity. And the only reason it didn't happen is because he wasn't looking carefully enough at the evidence. He was forming something of a plan, but not much more beyond, oh, I'll go get Matt Murdock. That's where I can find him. One thing that I do like about Bullseye coming so close, and I mentioned this before, is the whole common sense aspect of it. You know, if we suspend disbelief enough that we go into a world where we have all these super-powered humans and superheroes, We've already suspended our disbelief, and then we always need to do it that little bit further that everybody almost seems blind to the quote-unquote secret identities that have become oh-so-prevalent. So it was kind of funny, or it was kind of cool and interesting to see, hey, he puts it together from looking at two pictures, but then at least it talks through his thought process as to, well, no, it couldn't be this guy. It has to have been a stage. Yeah. At first, he sees... He goes to check out Matt Murdock just to check. He's like, no, this guy is way too different. And then he drops the hint of being recognized, and then there's enough evidence to think he's being set up. I mean, I get that. If we talk about movies again that didn't live up to expectations for some of my favorite characters, one of my favorite moments of the Green Lantern film is when Carol Farrell recognizes Hal, and he starts to backtalk, and and her response is, what, you think I won't recognize you just because I can't see your cheekbones? It's a nice touch, but... I like seeing it here, and I like the way they play with it, so that he can preserve the secret identity. But it's not like some of the other cases where they walk away thinking they're totally unrelated. It's like, okay, well, they are clearly friends, and they set this up. Which works, you know, as far as Franklin Nelson's concerned, you go back to, you know, Daredevil, roughly 25 to 50, where Matt Murdock was pretending his brother, twin brother Michael, was the real Daredevil, which would explain the similarity. Although it didn't explain why Daredevil was still active when Mike Murdock died. I had forgotten about that. Why did you need to bring it up? <laughs> but no, this is easily a watermark, but yeah, aside from that, there's not a lot, except maybe following through. Like, Frankly, had Electra been cold-hearted enough to kill Foggy Nelson, she probably would not have been caught unawares. A lot of this, there's so many problems because people let their emotions get in the way, which is quite possibly not the message Frank Miller was saying. You know, we should all be Vulcan, effectively. but. He's more dealing with the natural ramifications. You know, talking about emotions, the humorous part about this is Daredevil or Matt Murdock actually comes off as being the most emotionless person throughout the entire span of this issue, and he ends up winning. And uh, it's very, very interesting, and I, I do like the way they did it, and I understand why it was done the way that it is. But just to see how Bullseye is, for lack of other words, an emotional wreck throughout the entire issue. <laughs> He has, like, he can't stand the fact that he's been beaten and it won't stop eating away at him. This is one of the definitive runs. This, the 168 to 182 run, was the piece that was, shall we say, misinterpreted to become 
the Mark Stephen Johnson film. <laughs> Which, to be fair, is much better in the director's cut. So we don't know how much of the misinterpretation is coming from Johnson and how much of that is coming from Fox 2. No matter how much more I did enjoy the director's cut, all that I say is playground fight scene. Yeah. Playground fight scene. <laughs> yeah, that, that definitely worked better on the page than it did on the screen. Can't wait for Batman and Superman to have a playground fight scene. <laughs> in any event, we do like to wrap up by taking a look at why things landed where they did in the countdown. So when we're looking at why things landed where they did on this list, the three elements we look at are, first of all, entertainment value, second, importance to continuity, and third, the messages and meanings and how those resonate. The first two are here in spades. Very entertaining, and as we said, for Daredevil, there's before this issue and after this issue. It just was a turning point for the entire series. Do you have anything to add to that? Or? No, as you said, it's a turning point for the entire series, and it really does set the stage for the darker nature of the Daredevil character. Because, you know, as we had talked about before with the villains, no matter how scary some of the villains were supposed to be, they weren't. <laughs> and this really puts, like, that dark aspect onto it. With that said, I'd like to thank Anthony once again for agreeing to come on and discuss this issue. Oh, it's always a pleasure to come out. Now, for those of you reading along at home, Next week, we are going to be dealing with Avengers Under Siege. It's Avengers Volume 1, Issues 270 to 277. It was reprinted in two trade paperback editions. One was a five-issue edition of just 273 to 277, published in 1994. There's also a more recent hardcover that includes all eight. The issues can also be found on Comixology, Marvel Digital Unlimited, and the Get Corp DVD-ROMs. Feel free to rate this and any of the shows you listen to on iTunes or on Stitcher. It really does help the shows get noticed and build the popularity. Also, feel free to share links with friends who you feel may be interested. You can join the Facebook discussion forum that we have to talk about this and any other stories that have come up in the podcast. And finally, thank you for listening. Comic books aren't for kids anymore. We've heard the refrain for years in mainstream media, but 30 seconds at the end of a newscast or two paragraphs in a magazine can't provide the behind-the-scenes information or entertainment like one episode of Word Balloon. Welcome to Word Balloon, the comic book conversation show. This is John Suntress. Word Balloon is a one-on-one -on -one interview program featuring pop culture conversations with storytellers. People who don't read today's comic books may think the medium is still being written for nine-year-olds, but as film, television, and video game producers can tell you, they couldn't be more wrong. These writers and artists are just as entertaining talking about their process as they are producing the stories they make. Listen to a sample episode and discover why Word Balloon leads the way in pop culture entertainment coverage.